Hey, it's Sarah. It's the week of the NFL draft, and if there's one podcast to get you ready for it, it's the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. This week, Mina's going to do a full first-round mock draft with Mike Golick Jr., complete with analysis and rationale for every pick. You can find the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. At AutoZone, they're all about giving you more choices to help you get what you need and get it fast. If you need something for a job that has to get done today, just order on AutoZone.com and choose free same-day pickup. You can pick your order up in-store at more than 5,700 locations nationwide, or if you prefer, you can have it brought out to you with their curbside option. Your choice. AutoZone also offers next-day delivery. Just order what you need on AutoZone.com by 10 p.m., and they'll bring it to your front door the next day. It's great for those jobs that can wait until tomorrow. That's how AutoZone helps you get your job done easier. Restrictions and details at AutoZone.com. Get in the zone. AutoZone. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. Hi, I'm Swing Cash, and my dilemma is my son usually takes his nap between 12 and 1, and unfortunately, I have a standing meeting, a conference call, Zoom, whatever you want to call it now, every Monday at that time. So how can I fix this dilemma? Okay, well, this is a tough one. Uh, is there any chance your husband can just handle putting him down for a nap? And remember, this advice is coming from someone who has zero kids. Could you just, like, adjust bedtime or breakfast or any other notable daily occurrences by, like, a half hour or so? And then he'd be ready to nap and fast asleep with time to spare, like, before the call starts? Of course, then he might wake up earlier and interrupt the call. How long do kids nap for anyway? I don't know. I think we found an area where the commission should just leave it to the experts. So moms, dads, people out there who know what they're talking about, tweet Swin. Give her a hand. Tell her what to do. The commission has spoken. My guest today is Swin Cash, legendary college and WNBA player who has won two titles with UConn and is a member of one of the greatest starting lineups of all time. She's a three-time WNBA champion, four-time WNBA All-Star, two-time WNBA All-Star MVP, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, and a 2020 inductee into the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame. Now in her post-playing career, she's the vice president of basketball operations and team development for the New Orleans Pelicans. We had a great conversation about her title runs at UConn, her relationship with legendary coach Gino Oriema, the early marketing efforts for the WNBA and how today's WNBA understands and represents the players much better, much more true to them, why issues around race and sexuality affect the acceptance and support of women's basketball, how a chance conversation with David Griffin led to a gig with the Pelicans, and what it's like to be a part of a franchise when Zion Williamson arrives, why she's talking to Zion's mama. This is a great conversation. I think you guys are going to love it. That's what she said. I'm so excited to have my girl Swin on the podcast. She is incredibly busy and she just launched a new show. So she's even busier than ever, even though the show is sort of ironically called She's Got Time. I don't know how much time she has. So we're going to try to get to as much of this as we can because we've got a, a massive basketball career to talk about and a new gig with the Pelicans as well. Swin, let's start at the beginning uh, when you were growing up. Was it clear that you were going to be tall, that you were going to be a basketball player? What were you into as a kid? Uh, it was clear that I was definitely going to have height. Uh, both my parents were tall. A lot of my family members are tall. Um, so that was going to happen. Uh, I was into a lot of different things as a kid. Uh, from a sports standpoint, baseball was my first love. 
But I was into cheerleading, dance, uh, drill team. Shout out to the Black Barrettes in uh, McKeesport, Pennsylvania. Um, So step in. I I loved a lot of different things. Um, But basketball kind of stuck with me more so once I got to like seventh and eighth grade and then eventually went on to high school. So you start to realize that you're pretty talented. At what point did it become clear like, oh, I'm going to get recruited. I'm going to have some of the best of the best trying to get me on their squad for college. Um, yeah, so I think it kind of hit me early, I would say after, I believe it was after uh, my freshman year. And I think UConn had won the national championship. And we were doing kind of our some of our summer workouts. Uh, my high school coach came over to me and he said, Hey, look over there in the corner. Do you see that guy over there dressed in all black? And I'm like, Yeah, yeah, I see him. He's like, he wants to wave to you. And I waved and he waved back. And I was like, all right, cool. He's like, yeah. So, you know, that's Coach Gino Oriema. They just won a national championship at UConn. Obviously, they're trying to recruit you. But he wanted to make sure that you saw that he was here in the gym. And I was like, okay, cool. See him. And just went back to kind of playing. But everybody else and my teammates who were obsessed with, like, I guess, college basketball at the time. And then obviously Rebecca Lobo. Um, were filling me in and I was like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's kind of impressive, right? Like to have him here. And, uh, I guess that's where it started for me. Well, and I love that he wasn't allowed to talk to you yet because of the rules. So he wanted to make sure that you saw him wave. Like I'm here. I'm watching. (laughs) I've, you know, I've got my eye on you, even though I can't talk to you yet. So you end up at UConn and, you know, they obviously had just won a national championship. There was certainly success there, but many argued that your starting five at UConn when you were a senior was one of the greatest in the, in the history of, of college basketball. You had a, incredible teammates. Um, I'm curious over the course of your years at UConn, what your relationship with Gino was like, because there are some people that can't stand uh, his, his style of coaching others that sort of begrudgingly admit later that he got the best out of him. What was it like for you? Uh, yeah, it was kind of like the, the gift and the curse, I would say with both of us. Um, I'm strong minded. He's strong minded. Um, he, his approach, I would always say is, um, he tries to, because he gets so much talent, you literally, he tries to break you before he can build you back up. And I, and I didn't realize that until I was a senior, but every single thing was a test. It was a test to get to the, to the water fountain. It was a test, you know, for free throw standpoint, everything was to push you outside of your comfort zone. When I say from a basketball IQ standpoint of how to, uh, manufacture a team to play at a level for each other, um, he's one of the best of the best. Personality-wise, you either love, or, love him or hate him. It's like one of those things where people either want to have a glass of wine with him or they want to throw the wine on him. I mean, pick or two. <laughs> That's just kind of how it is. And we saw that obviously early on. But I think for me, it was really a respect factor. We both come from Pennsylvania. Um, obviously, he comes from Eastern Pennsylvania, uh, the east side of the state, and I'm from the west side of the state. But I think that hard-nosed mentality, having to grind for everything you want, coming from humble beginnings, he understood for me, it was going to be a fight every single day to prove not only that I belonged, but I wanted to be my best, the best version of myself. So I think because of how hard he pushed me, how hard the other coaches pushed me, it definitely helped me become, you know, the player that I wanted to become. Yeah. So you were an All-American there. You won the title in 2000 and 2002. In 2002, it was a 39-0 and season leading up to that title. That was that starting five that people still talk about to this day. Talk about what it's like to play with 
you know, the Suber, Diana Taurasi, you know, these, these other women that become greats in their own right. Well, when you're all still college players, you obviously are atop the country, but how do you balance the egos? How do you balance, you know, everybody wanting their own, uh, their own shine? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think one day we'll probably all sit down and definitely tell, you know, the story, not only of that team, but I think just my senior class, because it was four of us, obviously. And then we had DT, um, in that 2002 starting lineup. But I think it's just a selflessness. Everybody was very selfless. We're committed to the goal. And it wasn't just a goal of a national championship. We wanted to show everybody that we were the best of the best. And so we wanted to dominate you from start to finish. And um, it's really like one of those things when you're ever, whenever people talk about when you're out hunting and you have and people are hunting and it's like the, the kill, right? It's either kill or be killed. Like that literally was our mentality if you take it into kind of that form. And I think with that team, the one thing about it is people look at it now and they see the longevity of our careers and immediately they go to kind of talking about Sue or Diana or myself. But the reality is, is that we had two pit bulls in a skirt and that was Tamika and Asia. Um, and when I tell you, like there wasn't anybody in the country, Tamika was shooting like I think close to 70 percent from the floor because she took shots only around the basket and it wasn't like she was going to miss. Asia was defending people six five, six six. It didn't matter. Like she was just she was probably the smartest out of all of us from an IQ standpoint in the classroom and also <laughs> and also on the floor. Like she was just that bright. So I think we don't we don't have that same team if all those pieces don't work together. And I think we all have that level of respect for each other's game. And that's why we'll always, you know, talk about that team as a whole and as a unit. Yeah, Diana Taurasi, a sophomore that season, so she stuck around. But you talk about a starting lineup. Sue Bird went number one to the Storm. You went number two to the Shock. Asia went number four, Asia Jones, to the Mystics. And Tamika Williams, number six, to the Lynx, all in the first round of that same draft. Uh, so an incredible starting five, um, an incredible accomplishment and sort of part of this incredible legacy for UConn women's basketball, all the different titles and undefeated seasons. Uh, tell me about what it's like for you. You're, you're retired a couple years ago. You've settled into a front office gig. Um, watching someone like Sue Bird, who is still playing, your contemporary at UConn, who's still out there. Uh, it's amazing. You know, we talk about it all the time. Uh, her and I just joke a little bit because I, you know, I was so bummed whenever Tokyo Olympics didn't happen this year. And I'm like, all right, you got to keep grinding. You got another year. Then we're going to go year by We're taking this year by year right now. But um, Sue is, you know, she, as she has matured and, and, uh, not only in, as herself, as a woman, she's also mature when it comes to like how she takes care of her body and really looking at it from a holistic standpoint and not just a medicine standpoint. And, and she'll talk, I mean, she'll tell you about that. And I, and I love to see that approach in her evolving in that space because I think it's so helpful for younger players that are going to come in because, you know, back in our day, it's like, Oh, something's wrong. All right. You take this medicine and you're fine. Well, now it's about, you know, sustainability and that holistic approach. And, um, I I think that's why she's been able to continue to play at such a high level. Yeah. I've, I, and, you know, it's remarkable, too, even just to think about the things that have become common practice that weren't back when we were in college. We're about the same age. So, like, foam rolling is, like, the thing. We didn't <laughs> foam roll in college. Like, we would right. have math, but we didn't, like, we didn't have a lot of the same things that have become common practice. Our, our you know, coaches weren't having us do yoga regularly, which I think would have been huge for any number of other, you know, athletic endeavors to mix that in. So, um, it is funny, you know, the ways that athletes are able to extend their careers now. Uh, so you get drafted by the Detroit Shock in the 2002 draft. 
Um, what did it feel like at that moment to realize you were playing professional basketball? You were getting paid a salary and you were part of, you know, this, this thing that was the WNBA. Uh, it was amazing. I mean, honestly, I was four, four and a half hours max, um, from, from Pittsburgh, uh, Detroit to know I was going there. Uh, the city reminded me of home because it was blue collar. Um, and to think that I was going to be playing in front of family, friends in our country, uh, for money, like that, that to me was just mind blowing because I grew up before the WNBA only watching the NBA. And having to think about an idea of like being the first woman to play in the NBA, being the first woman to play in the NBA, that was all the talk growing up, right? And then you get to this point in high school and it's like, oh, the WNBA? And I don't have to be the first. We have our own. And that to me uh, was probably the biggest thing is like I never took for granted one night running out there on the floor. I didn't care if there was a thousand, thousand fans, a thousands of fans, or only one fan. Uh, what mattered to me was that we were doing something that I knew uh, one day, either my children or their children or my nieces, um, they would have an opportunity to, to be proud and have an opportunity to look at something that they could eventually get to. Yeah, you know, it's interesting at ESPNW, we talk a lot about if you can see it, you can be it. And there is a generation before the WNBA that would say, I want to hit a baseline fadeaway like MJ, or I want to have a hook shot like Dr. J, right? And you wouldn't have female counterparts that you could say, I want to defend like this player. I want to be as versatile as this player. And then the WNBA opened up people's eyes for, first of all, to something to push towards in their own careers, but also women's games to model themselves after that. Um, you know, you, you could do it with college players, but it just feels different at the professional level. And um, I, I'm curious when the WNBA, uh, when you were just getting started in there, it's interesting how those early iterations pushed for players to fit into sort of this idea of I'm a beautiful woman who also plays basketball. Here I am lying on the hood of a car. Here I am in lipstick and a, and a halter top, like I'm going to the club right after the game. And for some people, it felt like it didn't fit at all. For others, sure, you kind of got like this, this is a woman who's both of these things, but, um, we've unearthed some old ones, particularly of folks like Sue Bird and Diana Tarazi have posted them and said, okay, this is so far from who I am. What did it feel like to be a part of that early marketing campaign? And was it was it palpable from the inside that it was kind of pushing something that wasn't real? Or did it feel like, okay, this is what it means to be a professional? Well, you know, I was always the rogue one. And so <laughs> I, think, I think with me, I always had questions and sometimes it irritated people and sometimes they just didn't understand why I asked. But, you know, like you said, for me, yeah, I liked modeling. I modeled in, you know, in high school. So being in yoga pants and being on a car and doing these different things, like that's fun to me. But I would look at friends of mine or, you know, colleagues of mine that I knew that wasn't who they were naturally. And I didn't get why they would need to do that. And so I think early on, like everybody was just trying to do whatever it takes to save the league, to have the league here. So you're going to just go with what people are saying. This is best practices. This is going to help. And so there really wasn't a collective voice to make that change. Whereas I felt like this should be about ball. Like, yes, we can sell. We should be able to sell who we are. And I never felt like early on that we were doing that. And we were so far in one direction. And then 
few years passed. And then we swung so hard to the other direction. And it kind of internally, one of the things I didn't like is it started um, creating kind of resentment where there were some players who didn't care to just, I don't want to be dressed up in feminine stuff. That's not what I do. Well, they started having certain um, resentment towards players that the league pushed you know, the league was pushing them and it's like, why are you mad at her? That That is who she is, but it's not, you know, it's not her fault that they're getting pushed and you're not. And so it, it was like a whole, it was a toxic for a few years. It was toxic internally, I think, with the players until the players realized. And I said this a um, number of times at our union meetings and to other people is like until we figure out how to speak as a voice collectively, like this huge umbrella and and realize it's okay to be exactly who you are under that umbrella, then we're not going to push forward. You know, so whether you have people under that umbrella who have some have faith and believe in this, some people are Jewish or some people are Buddhist. And like, even from a religion standpoint, you also need to be able to care and put everybody under that umbrella. And so I used to always say like, we talk about diversity and inclusion and we're the ones that want to fight against it, but you can't go against your own principles Mm -hmm. uh, while you're doing that. So that was kind of the biggest thing. And I think we finally now, Sarah, I can say is that a lot more players are taking ownership of this league of the collective brand and wanting to be into conversation. And also the league's listening. There was a time when I don't think they were listening as much as they should have been. Um, to the players who represent the body and are the product for the league. Yeah, it's it's remarkable just in the last 10 years or so how much our society has opened up to allow people of so many different types, whether that's religion, sexuality, identity, uh, you know, gender identity, like visual appearance, right? I was, I was watching these old Bulls games and thinking how ahead of his time Dennis Rodman was. I mean, obviously he was trying to figure himself out and, 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 and show who he was in unique ways, but, um, we thought it was so strange then. And now it's kind of like whoever you are is mostly cool. Now there's certainly some people who are going to push back, but, uh, you know, I love that the WNBA now embraces that a lot of its fans are queer or a lot of its fans are people of color instead of trying to say we're, we're trying to fit into this little box and everybody has to be the same. They're, they're pushing out. Here's all the different WNBA fits, right? Here's the drip of the day and why they look cool because they're representing themselves instead of um, trying to appeal to whatever that stereotype is. But I think even as that's changing and acceptance is growing, Swin, we also still see that the most popular and accepted sports for women are the ones where the athletes are the sort of girl next door, traditional slash stereotypically acceptable aesthetic. So tennis and soccer. Um, and I wonder when you look at something like the Olympic team, you are a multi-time, you know, Olympian, uh, what it's like to, to work as hard as you have to be as dominant as the U S women's basketball team is, and maybe not have the same appeal to people or the same acceptance as the U S women's soccer team. That's made up of majority white players, smaller, more physically, like less imposing. And until very recently, less outwardly queer. Yeah. You know, I think one of the the things for me is that it all stems back to um, this idea that we as a country have not dealt with well racism, um, inequality. And the more that we don't deal with it at the top level, it, the harder it will be for everyone else around. So whether that's in corporate America and not having a, a social responsibility and understanding of 
who you are and who you know your consumer or your fan base is like that's part of the problem right because like for instance the olympics come around every four years and people want to figure out you know who do i want to attach my brand to well for so long they only wanted to attach their brand to what the idea of what usa or what america looked like right Mm -hmm. so you you get to a situation where how dominant the women's olympic team is and i obviously like you said won two gold medals i had more kind of sponsorships and I've had more sponsorships and different things since I stopped playing and when I wasn't playing than when I was playing. And, and that to me is like unbelievable because you talk about how social responsible a lot of the USA women's basketball team is, how they're giving back, how they're out in the community, how they fight for different causes. And you can't tell me you want to put your brand behind somebody like that. I think that is part of the problem. And even still today, it, it, even as more WNBA players continue to get certain um, deals and certain marketing, you're, you still see the undertone of like racism. Like, let me give you, let me give you a small example. And I know we have to continue on is like, look at Tina Charles. Tina Charles is one of the biggest, mar- the biggest market in New York City. Mm-hmm. Playing for, went back home to her hometown, New York Liberty, has an amazing, amazing uh, foundation. The work that she has done has saved lives. And besides just, I, I know Nike, what other sponsors have said, that's my girl. You're talking about a girl from Queens that grew up family, um, you know, background from Jamaica, from Trinidad. Like, how does she not be, how do I come into New York and I see somebody else, another WNBA player that's up on a billboard in New York City and not the one that's playing here for your hometown? Right. Like, so, and I look at Tina Charles and Tina Charles is African American woman. She's dark skin. She has dreads in her hair. So is that not as appealing? And I, and love Sue and Sue and I have these conversations offline even as well. But Sue, regardless of if Sue is, is gay or not, Sue is also still very appealing to the eyes. And mm-hmm. regardless, if Sue doesn't speak, she can still advertise for you because that's what they feel America wants to see. Mm-hmm. And that in lies the problem for me, which people don't want to address or speak about. But you have to acknowledge these things, have the dialogue in order to break this system of systematic racism down. And until we do that, that is part of the problem. Yeah. And it feels like it happens so much more with female athletes. There's this idea of not only do you have to be the best at the sport you play, but you probably have to figure out what kind of career you're going to have after you're done, because you're not going to walk away with millions of dollars the way most male professional athletes are going to. You have to represent the sport. Well, you can't get into trouble. You have to be charitable. You have to be a great spokesperson. You have to be extremely charismatic. You have to be beautiful. You have to look good while you're playing and off the court. Meanwhile, most of the guys, it's just like, didn't even graduate, got to leave college early and enter the draft because millions of dollars were waiting for them. They don't have to be particularly nice to the media or their fans. They don't have to cultivate a personality outside of sports. Now, the best of them do, and plenty of them have that, but it's not required. What does it feel like to be one of the greatest athletes ever in your sport and also know that you have to promote it, help sell tickets, be a part of the marketing you know, for the team, and, and be a role model beyond just being great at what you do? Sarah, (laughs) everything that you just said was so exhausting to even listen to. Now, think about this. Think about having to live that out every day. Mm -hmm. Everything you just said is so exhausting to even listen to because your brain's trying to process. How can you do all these things? Well, try living that out every single day. And that is where a lot of women 
and especially minority women, what we have to do and what I know personally I've had to do for years throughout my whole career. And in the back of your mind, you keep saying, I'm pushing forward. I'm pushing hard. I'm going to make change. I want to leave the doors open because in your mind, you keep hoping that the girl behind you, the family member that's coming up behind you, they're going to have it better. So that's why I was so whenever the WNBA got their deal this year, as far as the new CBA and everything, I was happy. I was ecstatic. And I was telling every girl to hit me up and saying, you know, thanks, you know, for last time. I, I understand how hard it was now. And I'm going through this process. Thanks for everything that you guys did. And I said, look, it's even before us. Yeah, we were in there fighting for 10 plus years. Catch Ruth, myself and, and Tamika and Jane. Yeah, we were fighting. But you have to understand there are women that make sacrifices that will never get to reap the fruits of anything mm -hmm. from the WNBA. Like think about the NBA. Like we have girls right now who are dealing with breast cancer and different stuff like that. This CBA did nothing for the former players, right? Look how long it took the NBA to even the NBA and the union to even do something for their ex players that laid the foundation down. So now multiply it by a million because it's going to take the women a lot longer to even get there. So that's the reality we live with every single day. And so when people tell me, Swan, why are you always on your soapbox? You got to chill. You got to do this. No, I don't have to chill. We don't have enough time to be chilling. Like that's the problem. It's so exhausting. But if you're going to fight, you better be on the front lines fighting every day. Because when I walk outside my door, I realize whether I am a you know Olympic gold medalist, whether I work in the front office, whatever the case may be, people still, before they even... Uh, hear me say a word will judge me by the color of my skin or the fact that I'm a female and have two already have two ideas about who I am before I even say a word. OK, I understand that I'm not using it as an excuse. But what I do know is I can take that motivation and continue to try to make life in the world better for everybody else, even if I don't get to see how it all ends. You know, like that's what we have to live with every single day. And it's exhausting. Hell, it's exhausting. Most people couldn't do it. That's why right now when this pandemic and everything is happening and people are going crazy, there's a lot of people that are like, hey, this is what I do. This is what I've been living with. This is the type of things that I have to deal with, <laughs> you know? So it's, it's, it's amazing. But like you said, women are resilient. Women, we care. And we've been fighting for a really long time. We'll continue to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even mention throwing in there if they have, you know, family at home to take care of, if they have kids, if, you know, if you want to play till you're 40, you got to figure out, am I having kids during my playing time? Do I have to wait till my career is over? And you add that on top of all the other responsibilities. It's a lot. Uh, I'm curious, you know, now that you've gotten into the NBA side of things, you had this incredible career, you know, you're a three-time champ, a four-time all-star, a two-time MVP, a two-time Olympic gold medalist. You achieved everything you possibly could in addition to doing social activism and speaking out about causes that matter to you while you were, you know, had the agency and the voice of a player, you, you get into the media stuff and you start, you do, we need to talk. You work for Turner sports, you do some stuff for ESPN. And now you've ended up with the Pelicans VP of basketball operations and team develop. First of all, can you let us know quickly, like, what does that mean? What does that job entail on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, that, that job entails on a day to day basis, interacting with our players, their agents, um, the business side, as far as how we're marketing our players, how we're um, pursuing community outreach for them, making sure that it's aligned with what our vision is, um, helping create and build the ecosystem 
alongside David Griffin and Trajan Langdon. Um, for me, the biggest thing is making sure that we're operating on all cylinders. We're looking at everything from a holistic view as we continue to build. We have a very young team. And so we have to cultivate culture every single day. How do we drive culture? And that's part of my job and my team. And I have um, some great guys that work alongside me. But every single day we are building culture. We're building a family in order to make sure that when the time is right and we get an opportunity to, to be in a championship and to hoist that trophy that it's all the groundwork, the foundation is already laid for many years to come. Tell me about David Griffin and how he was a big part of the reason you end up working there. Yeah, so Griffin and I worked at Turner together, media, and we were covering, you know, everything. NBA, obviously. Uh, I was covering some college basketball as well. And we were working at Turner. So if anybody that's, that knows Turner, you sometimes you'll see kind of like in the pit there where everybody's talking and you come together. It could be Shaq and Air Charles, Griff, me, Isaiah. And one night we were talking about college hoops. And then after that, I was about to leave. Griff was about to go on set. And Griff hit me and he said, hey, he said, you know, if I get one of these jobs I'm talking about, right? He's like, I'm going I'm to I'm call you. He's like, I, I, want, I want you to come with me. And I'm like, okay, cool. Good luck. You know, <laughs> I didn't think much of it until my phone a couple weeks later pings from ESPN. And it's like, uh, David Griffin is now with New Orleans Pelicans. And then it just, it, it went really quick from there. Um, I give it up to Griff because he's an ally. He definitely, he believes in a lot of the things that, that I believe in. Um, I told him when I came here, look, I'm going to come here. You told me to be exactly who I am and bring, you know, everything that I have to the table to offer. But I want to learn from you because I want to know if I can learn as much as possible that needs to be learned, whether it's through drafting, through this, through scouting, everything of how we built an organization to be one of the best in the world because he's won a championship with the Cavs. And he was like, of course. And so part of me being here is not only infusing kind of what I do and how I can cultivate culture here, but it's also learning as much as possible to see if one day I would ever want to be president of uh, of an organization. Wow. It's, so uh, how much of yourself are you bringing to this job? Are there ever moments where you think, I'm a woman and I have to act differently. Or are you able to walk into every space, every room, every court, regardless of the the front office people or the players or the coaches that are there and be the same person you've been all along? Um, usually I can, uh, except for I, I definitely duck and dodge from our locker rooms. And when we're on the road, there's always that thing where I feel like I have to be more cognizant than the guys do. <laughs> Um, because of just kind of, uh, of us being like, everybody's used to everybody being around and we're one of the guys. So just making sure that, you know, I keep everything as as close as possible as far as being there for them, but also kind of giving them their space when they need to do things and not feel that somebody's in here. I have to tighten up. Like they need that space. Um, I would say from the the standpoint of, of being a female, I think there are times whenever you're in any meeting, you know, that, Things will come up. And because we think of things differently, it may take people uh, some time to kind of process it and be like, oh, OK, I, I didn't think about it in that capacity. So that's happened to me a couple of times. And I would think that I think the other thing is, is that a lot of times when you're new, the great thing about being new um, and having so many people that are new is that you're not surprised when somebody speaks up. A lot right. of times when you're working for an organization for a really long time, you kind of get set in your ways and people know who talks in the meeting, who doesn't. And for us, like Griff is like, we come into the meetings. It's like everybody, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in basketball ops and you're our intern. He may ask you a question. And I love the fact that he lets people 
um, have that space um, and understand that they're part of the process. Yeah, for sure. What's it been like watching Zion Williamson have this delayed entry to his NBA debut and then take off and then, of course, have it put on on hiatus? What's he been like behind the scenes? Um, he's exactly what you guys see as far as uh, in interviews and any media stuff he's done. Uh, I, I, to be honest with you, there's been times when I've just let his mom know, like, you um, and, and and Lee have just done an amazing job uh-huh. because he genuinely like cares. He understands the process. I mean, and to have as much has been thrown on him and then to have the injury early on and have to deal with, you know, I was at, at times where I would have to tweet something and then say, nope, delete, because I know this is going to go viral. Nope. Because, you know, you want to protect because people don't understand um, and people are coming at him left and right. And I thought he just handled it like a professional, like a champ. And to be that mature at 19 is, is he's beyond his years. And he definitely cares about this city. Um, and I, I have he's a joy to, to, to work with. Um, but not only him, too. I mean, Nikhil and Jackson Hayes, I, I call them my rooks all the time because they came into this thing together and they really kind of just took New Orleans by storm. And they just really are great young men. Yeah, that's so great to hear. I love that you're calling up his mom like, you know what? Good job. You nailed it. You did a, yes. did a good job. Uh, tell me about your new show, She's Got Time Live. Where can people find it and what is it? Yeah, so every Wednesday night, 9 Central, 10 p.m. on the East Coast, 7 p.m. out West. And it is on my IG Live. You can go to at Swing Cash. We just have fun. You know, I just felt like there were a lot of parents. There were a lot of people that were out there struggling, trying to work all day long, teaching, cooking, and doing all these different things. And I'm just like... We need a place to come, to vent, to just talk. And I also wanted to go live with some random people that may follow me and have questions. Um, and I said, let's do this. Let's let's have time because we definitely have time right now, literally. And so that is the biggest thing is come to my IG live tonight. We will be there and every Wednesday. Life today is kind of a lot. It forces us to always be on. But every now and then, it's important to just stop, crack open a mountain cold Coors Light, and chill. So when you choose to turn off, choose the one beer that's made to chill. Coors Light, mountain cold refreshment, made to chill. Coors Light is brewed with a three-step cold process, cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. So it's actually made to chill. The mountains on Coors Light cold activated bottles and cans turn blue when chilled to perfection. Born in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in 1978, Coors Light is refreshing, crisp, and only 102 calories. That's why Coors Light is the one to choose when you need a moment of chill. When you want to reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. You can have Coors Light delivered by going to get.coorslight.com and finding local delivery options near you. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And finally, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. Question one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. Um, Probably would be um, Real Love, Mary J. Blige. Ooh, good. It's nice. Mary J. Kinks. Can't steer you wrong. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? 
I would say I'm obsessed, uh, my obsessive behavior. (laughs) (laughs) Spun it as a positive. Yes. Uh, Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Uh, my biggest failure, um, not starting a, a company that I wanted to start and then seeing somebody else uh, go out with the idea. Yeah. Oh, that's, uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? Yes. Usually administering the blows or taking them? Uh, usually administering. Okay. I mean, I've, I've taken a couple shots, but I'm pretty uh, good with my hands. All right. Here, good to hear. Uh, five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Um, if I could switch lives with anyone for a day, it probably would be, uh, living or they have to be living. No. Uh, if anyone for a day, I probably would say Christ. Oh, that would be interesting. A lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. A lot of pressure. Yes. Um, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Uh, the most embarrassed I've ever been? Probably um, not in the moment, but afterwards. Yes, definitely. Probably have to be in college shooting in the wrong basket and oh, no. making it into Sports Center and saying it was a season of giving during Christmas time. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God. You know what, though? That just tells you anyone can do it. When we've got like a women's basketball Hall of Famer who is like achieved at every level, we've all been there. Everybody makes mistakes. Um, number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? I would probably say... Right now, the thing that I probably most like to improve is getting more sleep. Oh, well, yes. how old is your, your son now? Yeah, two and a half. Yeah, that's, that'll, <laughs> do it. that'll do it for sure. Uh, number eight, if you could play commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? I would say that um, all of society for a day would have to be kind. To yeah. one another. That's regardless. It's been going around. Yeah, it feels like yes. time for for that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. It's on the top of everyone's mind. Uh number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Uh the most scared I've ever been probably would be um hearing that I had a sister with cancerous in two thousand and seven. Oh wow. Super scary. Yeah. yeah. Yes, for sure. But you made it through, it sounds like. We're here. You're so highly here. blessed and highly favored. That's right. Uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Um, I would say uh, fearless, um, confident, and selfless. Ooh, I love those. Those are good ones. Uh, and finally... Who should I have on this podcast? Who's someone that you love talking to or that you would love to hear from? Doesn't have to even be sports related. No, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, I would say David Griffin. Okay. I would love to have David Griffin on. I'll mm-hmm. have to see if uh, <laughs> I know somebody who can who can set it up. Know somebody. Uh, I know somebody. Hey, Swin, I know you're so busy. Thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it anytime, Sarah. And good luck with everything. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, it's people that are using this Last Dance documentary about the 90s Bulls as an excuse to get into that whole Jordan versus LeBron debate. Man, we have that in our back pockets all the time. We can go back to that whenever we want. Let's just stay focused on all things Bulls. The greatness of Mike and Scotty, the intrigue that Rodman provided, the -the behind-the-scenes contract drama with Krause and Phil. 
all this good 90s nostalgia, even those terrible giant suit pants that could fit like three dudes in them. There is so much more to get into with The Last Dance than that old, tired MJ versus LeBron argument. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this, because it's just going to the well with no new facts. We've seen all this stuff before. The games, we've seen Michael play. We know how good he is. We've seen LeBron, and he's not playing right now. We've done this debate to death, and I'm sure we're going to go back to it a million times. But let's not miss out on all the great little details and stories packed into these five weeks, because we're rushing to get back to today for no reason. Today sucks. 2020 is a bitch, man. Just stay in your warm 90s Bulls bubble. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. MJ is better than LeBron. There, I fixed it. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.